Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Well, good to be with you. I'm Alec Hogg from Biz News with my colleagues, Nadja Swart and Justin Rowe Roberts, to bring you up to date on what's been happening on the South African news and markets in the last 24 hours. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. We're making a few changes as well as our lives change uh, today. Nadia, lovely having you here with us in the market report, but you're not the only new addition. Uh, we're also going to be introducing a little later our new partnership with the Financial Times of London, uh, where we'll have a uh, right about a 10-minute wrap-up of all the international news. Really good stuff, isn't it? Mm, very good. It was amazing to read through all the content this morning. Yeah, lovely to have them as uh, as well, have your license from the FT, also Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. So Biz News is certainly bringing the best, the big three, uh, to mm-hmm. anyone who follows or any member of our community, including those of you listening uh, free to air here on Fine Music Radio and, of course, High FM. Nadia, what has been going on in the news here in South Africa today? So the first story that actually stood out to me was that the Constitutional Court cleared President Cyril Ramaphosa of the allegations that he had misled lawmakers about campaign finance donations, which is a great because it's considering, I mean, Zuma's sentencing by the Constitutional Court. So that's great news. And on the other hand, the South African stocks have also closed out their strongest first half in 14 years. And JP Morgan, Chase & Co. is among those that forecast even further gains for 2021. Just uh, waiting a little on that court action. That was, of course, the public protector who was having a go at Ramaphosa. Yes, of course. But there are also reports that maybe they will actually be looking into misconduct on her side. But we'll obviously have to wait and see. But I think it's great that two constitutional court victories on behalf of the citizens in one week. Yeah, democracy certainly uh, mm. will be celebrating those two days. Interesting to, to watch on Biz News, our biggest story at the moment is Ivermectin. It's one report that's come out. Uh, talking a little later mm. in the program with uh, William Sanderson Mayer, he'll be telling us about another report that's come out. So you, you get one hand, people say Ivermectin's a great thing. Other hand, Ivermectin, not so good. Mm. Oh, it's confusing, this whole COVID story. It really is. And I mean, all these reports are surfacing and what's worrying is the fact that it's just, it's not out there enough. We should be able to have enough enough autonomy to make these decisions for ourselves. So the fact that it's being buried is concerning. Well, let's pick up on the markets now with Justin Rowe Roberts. Uh, Justin, we've already heard from Nadia, she's stolen a little bit of your thunder, that it's been the best half year in some years. Yes, Alec, 11, 11% for the JSE all share to begin the year, um, as, as we'll go through later with Lissetti, the individual price moves. But just two things I want to pick up from the FT. Uh, obviously, we started their relationship today. Uh, DD, uh, the Uber of China, they listed in, in the US yesterday. It's not interesting as a standalone, Alec. What is interesting is that Tencent has a 6% stake. So all South Africans have a vested interest via NASPIS, via Process. Another big uh, news story is Blackstone, the biggest private equity player in the world, doing fantastically well. They listed in the midst of the global financial crisis in 2007, <laughs> went horribly, went to single digits from $34 uh, a share, all the way back up to $100. It's been about a 20-bagger in the last decade, done unbelievably well. They've benefited from, from low interest rates. And if I have to move to the price action today, on the JSE, a good day for the JSE, toing and froing from the red to the green. The all share index is slightly higher at 66,600. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 32 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 77 cents to the pound, and 17 rand on the dot to the euro. Gold is up. Up at $1,778 an ounce. Krugerrand is, is trading stronger at around 26,500 rand mark. 
Brent crude is up strongly at $77.30 a barrel. This is the highest mark that Brent crude has been since September 2018. If I have to look at the price action of the individual uh, movers today, Harmony Gold, some respite for the gold stocks. They, they've had a horrible June uh, off around 20 to 25%. Harmony up 5%. Sassol with uh, the oil price moving up to 2.5% today. They're up 4%. Northern Platinum, good day for the miners. If I have to look on the... What's in the red today? Some telecom, some real estate companies, uh, SAPI, that's paper and packaging. So a bit of a mixed bag. And then uh, the heavyweight, NASPIS, 1% down. You did mention Cecil. They've got a new chief financial officer, Paul Victor, who's been there 21 years, has decided to leave there. Not yet, uh, before we go, anything more in the news that we should be paying attention to? Uh, well, on the Zuma front, there's still haven't found him, but the... They haven't found him, so he's disappeared. No, they haven't found him. Yes, no. I mean, well, there's reports that he's gone to another country for the for the funeral, or he's in Kandla, but it, we have until Sunday, and then we'll have to see what happens. But the Jacob Zuma Foundation has made strong opposition to the Constitutional Court finding. And outside of that, uh, other yeah. big news stories yeah, today we should to we should be uh, paying attention to. It's been quite calm on the South African front. So actually just a few bits of positive news, but that's about it. Well, let's hope that uh, the calmness continues, that the third wave calms down and uh, that all the people who've been through such a difficult time and losing uh, family members, friends, etc., uh, that there is some hope in sight from the team here at Biz News with our news report. We've now got the rest of the Power Hour, coming up. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. From the Financial Times, today is Thursday, July 1st, and this is your FT News Briefing. Private equity firms broke a new record for deal-making in the past six months, and China's top ride-hailing service yesterday began trading in the U.S. Plus, in the U.K., there were nightmarish predictions for what would happen to channel ports after Brexit. All these lorry drivers would be stranded, uh, unable to uh, get to a service station as the road network imploded. We'll talk to the FT's public policy editor, Peter Foster, about what really happened. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Private equity firms had their busiest half-year on record. From January to June, groups struck more than 6,000 deals, totaling more than $500 billion. Blackstone was involved in three of the 10 largest private equity-backed deals, according to data from Refinitiv. CEO John Gray said Blackstone was benefiting from low interest rates. He added rising inflation was the biggest risk on the investment horizon. Wider corporate deal-making also rebounded from the early days of the pandemic. This quarter, overall transaction volumes hit an all-time high of $1.5 trillion. It's the fourth consecutive quarter that has topped the $1 trillion mark. China's top ride-hailing app, Didi Chuxing, began trading on the New York Stock Exchange yesterday. It's the largest Chinese company to hit the U.S. since Alibaba. Didi's share price ended the day 1% higher than its IPO price of $14. The FT's Miles Krupa describes Didi's debut and investor thinking about the company as mixed. Didi has a really strong position in the Chinese ride-hailing market with about 90% of the market. It's way more dominant there than Uber is in the U.S., for instance. That is an index to Chinese economic growth into the future, kind of like Alibaba, which was the last really massive uh, Chinese listing in 2014. On the other hand, there are a lot of regulatory uncertainties in China at the moment around big tech companies. Uh, We've seen what happened to Jack Ma and Alibaba. They've also taken a look at ride hailing and freight, which are big focuses of Didi and its competitors, and that certainly was weighing on investors' minds. So, Miles, does Didi plan to do anything with these funds it's raising, anything maybe in the U.S.? It doesn't appear they're going to do anything in the U.S. Basically, because of the way tech markets have developed, Uber and Lyft dominate in the U.S., Didi dominates in China. Didi is certainly expanding into the rest of the world. It's still very early, though. 
they are also pouring a lot of money into developing electric vehicles and autonomous uh, driving systems. That will be a huge capital expenditure for them going forward, and I expect they'll use a good amount of the proceeds for that. That's the FT's venture capital correspondent, Miles Krupa. Britain and the EU are still adjusting to their newfound separation. I mean, it's only been six months since Brexit. And if you recall, there were dire warnings about what would happen at English Channel ports. Critics predicted absolute mayhem, monster gridlock at the port of Dover and the nearby motorways. And that region of England, Kent, is known as the Garden of England. And people started talking about it as the toilet of England because uh, all these lorry drivers would be stranded, uh, unable to uh, get to a service station as the road network imploded. That's the FT's public policy editor, Peter Foster. He's been looking at why these nightmare scenarios never happened, and he joins me now. Hey, Peter, how's it going? Yeah, good. So what happened? What what are the reasons things went right? One is that many uh, traders stayed away, so they stockpiled before the January 1st deadlines when the new trade rules came in, had enough in their warehouses not to need to trade. So there were many less lorries on the road. Um, the government made a big effort also to communicate with the lorry drivers and with the companies and the haulage operators. They made them fill out something called a Kent access permit. It made hauliers think. So many less hauliers showed up at Dover with incorrect paperwork, only about 8% in January, which was much lower than the government was expecting. So if you put those two things together, lots of stockpiling and better than expected conformity with the new rules, then you ended up with no queues at all, really. Now, this is on the UK side. As I understand it from reading your story, uh, the French had quite a bit to do with the smooth rollout as well. Yes, indeed. You know, for this story, we spoke to the British government, to the French government and to haulage operators and logistics firms. And all three of those groups independently praised the French for two reasons. One is the French created a very efficient computer system where you've got a barcode and it checked that you had the right customs documents, scanned them into the lorry uh, and to the cockpit. And then it gave you a green or an orange light on the ferry. And that system kept the traffic moving. And I think the second thing is there was some fear, I think, among British officials that the French might be very pedantic with their customs checks it's to sort of make a point that leaving the European Union wasn't cost-free. But as it turned out, the French were very pragmatic. They didn't want the port of Calais on the other side of the channel uh, from Dover to be clogged with lorries any more than we wanted Dover to be clogged with lorries. And the French were feeding back uh, common problems that British lorry drivers had with their documents, feeding them back to the British government that was passing them back to the logistics operators so that each iteration of the travel cycle, less and less mistakes got got made. So, Peter, we're talking a lot about the ports and the success that we saw there. What about beyond the ports? It's a very good question, because what the government did was it actually ensured that there were no TV network pictures on the news of the motorways of southern England clogged with lorries to show that Brexit had been a disaster. But what they actually managed to do was to force all of that uh, disruption back into the factories, back into the logistics depots. So they actually experienced the disruption, but they just experienced it away from the public eye, which was exactly what the government wanted, because the government wanted to prove that despite all the economists and the trade experts saying you, it would be a very bad idea to erect all these barriers to trade, that actually it wasn't going to be as bad as all that. So they kept the disruption out of the ports, which was a really clever piece of media and expectation management on behalf of the British government. So there was a lot of disruption from Brexit, but it it just sounds like officials did a a really good job of making sure it wasn't out in the open. Um, We should also mention that this logistical success we're talking about or the perceived logistical success that we're talking about here took place at a time when ports weren't at full capacity because tourism wasn't a factor and tourism really hasn't returned to normal yet. No, indeed. So if you go to Dover and you stand on the white cliffs overlooking the port, you'll actually see that the port of Dover, although it's the main arterial link for trade, it's actually really quite a small port. It's only got five passport lanes. Now, because of COVID-19, all of the travel that you would expect of passenger vehicles getting on ferries, people going on their holidays, up to 20,000 cars a day hasn't happened. So the lorries, all the freight, all the trucks have had the port to themselves. They've been able to use all five of those lanes. And I think the worry is 
if we get summer holidays, if COVID-19 restrictions lift and all those Brits who like go camping in Brittany and Normandy, the lorries are going to have to share the passport lanes with the cars. And under the new rules, it's not just freight that faces new new rules and restrictions. All British citizens who go into the Euro- European Union, and that means you're going to be much longer queues. I think there are uh, people who run the port of Dover, who we spoke to, people who run the, the traffic systems in Kent, who are absolutely bracing for belated queues after the fact, uh, unless Dover can build more passport booths, uh, uh, get the traffic moving better. But there may yet be disruption ahead. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on that. Thanks, Peter. Peter Foster is the FT's public policy editor. And before we go, we've got the ending to a story we did a little while back. Remember, we told you about some news regarding Tim Berners-Lee? He's, of course, the guy who's famous for writing the original source code for the World Wide Web, and he decided to auction off an NFT for a digital artwork that showcases that code. NFT, or non-fungible tokens, are like digital certificates of authenticity. Well, yesterday was the auction at Sotheby's, and it sold for... Nearly five and a half million dollars. That's two and a half million dollars more than what a collector paid for the NFT for the very first tweet, the one sent by Twitter founder Jack Dorsey. But the Berners-Lee NFT netted way less than the $69 million someone paid earlier this year for the NFT to a piece made by the artist Beeple. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. At Brad Rock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's Thought Leadership feature made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. William Sanderson Mayer is the editor of Medical Brief. There was a big study of ivermectin in the United States. Now, uh, Ruben van Niekerk, who's the editor of Gay Pages, uh, is, is, has become uh, very focused on the whole COVID story. He sent us a, a pretty long, detailed uh, research report on the research report, and uh, he he believes it's uh, it's highly credible uh, for medical brief to run this. Given that your audience is uh, health professionals, I presume you also find that there's some value in the research that was done, or perhaps you could just contextualise it for us. Yes, it's it's a peer reviewed article, so uh, or it's an article in a peer reviewed journal, and the. The actual research, which was a meta-analysis, in other words, an analysis of, of other research studies, the peer review was done by credible scientists. Um, so it's certainly it's an important finding. Interestingly enough, since, since we published that this morning, I've added to that article, which is the joys, of course, of online publication, is there's been another uh, meta, meta-study, meta-analysis done which reaches opposite conclusions to, to the one conducted by, by the, uh, the alliance. Uh, so uh, it's, it, it's a very disputed field, but there's so much interest in it. And it's, it's actually a very important field, as you know. For people who don't have access to vaccines, ivermectin has become such a crux issue, whether they can access it, if they are allowed to access, how do they access it? And if, it, if they shouldn't be accessing it, why shouldn't they? So do you have any conclusions for us on that? Because it appears from one camp, if you say anything good about ivermectin, then you're spreading disinformation. From another camp, ivermectin is a great saviour. Yeah. Well, I think, as always, the truth falls somewhere in between. Uh, ivermectin may or may not be the great saviour uh, in that until full clinical trials, extensive clinical trials have been done, uh, it's difficult to know for sure. But uh, equally valid is the opposite point of view, that when you are stuck in a pandemic, where certainly uh, the kind of clinical trials that, uh, that bolster the case for vaccination are, are difficult to undertake in ethical, in ethical and in research terms, why not uh, investigate further at least? Uh, there's no reason, and at the very least, one has to trust 
the judgment of medical doctors who have experience on a day-to-day basis who are using ivermectin to varying degrees. And we haven't seen deaths. We haven't seen people being rushed to to emergency wards. Uh, I think we could assume that given the amount of passion aroused by by ivermectin, that if this were happening, we would certainly know about it. So uh, it it shouldn't be as black and white an issue as it has become. But the medical establishment is conservative. It 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 wants absolute proof, uh, which is very difficult under circumstances like these to, to find. But the the alliance study is being criticised as having cherry picked some uh, some of the studies, and the studies that they are studying were in fact not very well constructed. So I mean, it is obvious if if the study was badly constructed in the first place, the conclusions may well, very well not hold up. But that is probably true of whichever way you cut these two studies. So ivermectin has been around for a long time. It has no side effects. Uh, it may work, it may not work, but you're not really going to hurt yourself by taking it. Is, is that the sensible I th- conclusion? Well, I think you may well hurt yourself if you're taking it without any medical advice. So I think whatever... Whatever an individual, and people should be allowed to make these decisions. Individuals should be allowed to decide for themselves whether they're going to smoke a cigarette or take an ivermectin tablet. And what presumes that most people have the good sense to do it under advisement. They'll, they'll, they will consider the experience of other people who've taken ivermectin. And they will, best of all, they should, they should discuss it with their doctors. there are many doctors who who are, able, are are willing to prescribe it and willing to make it available. And uh, as long as you as long as you're being careful, I just really don't see that it's going to that it's going to be a disastrous decision. But thanks for clarifying that. Just talk to your doctor. Uh, certainly, my doctor said if you're taking it, that's fine. Uh, if you're not taking it, it's also kind of fine. She said there is no definitive proof. Uh, and we've had COVID and we, we're okay. You know, we threw it. But I guess uh, we can't now say, well, ivermectin has been the reason for it. There could be a multitude of reasons. I think that's for, such a critical point, Alec, uh, that there can be many causes. And, uh, I mean, the main thing, I think, is whatever decision you take on ivermectin, don't let it stop you from going for a vaccination. The other story on Medical Brief today that caught my attention was a court judgment that uh, you have reported on. Maybe you can give us some context. Yes, it's uh, a young woman. She's now, I think, in her early 30s, who uh, was born in what was the Soviet Union. Her parents fled the Soviet Union, came to South Africa. As the judge says, the, the land, the rainbow nation of which, of which they had heard so much and of what they expected and hoped so much of. Uh, she grew up here and then went to university in what is now the Russian Federation, Soviet Union no longer existing, and qualified as a dentist. She got uh, sailed through her dentistry exams. She was accredited uh, to be able to, to work as a dentist anywhere in the, in the Russian Federation and anywhere else in the world that, that, that recognizes uh, Russian qualifications. She returned to South Africa and then started this long, not atypical experience, of, a, of the utterly incompetent and often obstructive uh, Health Professions Council of South Africa. So basically, for the next years, uh, they said she had to she had to write a qualification, qualified examination, board examination, and she also had to do a practical. She sailed through her board examination, but she was told that she had to redo her practical. Then, for years. Uh, they would make they couldn't give her a date. They wouldn't give her a date. They didn't give her a date. She would uh, write again. The date would be mooted. It wouldn't happen. And this just went on for years and years until she eventually got sick of it all and uh, approached the court, approached the Fountain High Court, uh, where the judge was outraged by what she called the despicable behavior of HBCA. I keep wanting to call them SBCA and the and, and the animalistic way they behave, tempts want to do so. But it's the health professionals' council. She was very, very critical of the, of the council and said it appeared to her that there was some doubt whether they were actually fit for purpose. Interestingly enough, they hadn't. They didn't. Uh, in spite of 
of being so obstructive towards this woman, they neither she neither they nor the minister, who was the second respondent in the case, uh, actually contested the application. So the moment it went to court, they folded over, and that's probably why they had costs awarded against them. Is this the same body that took on Tim Noakes over many years? Yes, uh, over over many years, over I think a three or four year period, and uh, also again, I mean the, the Noakes the Noakes uh, hearings were also characterised by uh, substantial amounts of incompetence and bumbling. I, I don't know if you remember. At one stage, they declared him guilty, and then. An hour later, said, "No, no, we meant not guilty, or vice versa. I can't remember, but I mean, in any case, it just went on and on forever. They are—they all—they have been extremely obstructive in allowing foreign medical practitioners to register in South Africa. Many South, many young South Africans now go to China and also to Russia uh, and elsewhere in the world to to do their qualifications because it's so difficult to get into a South African medical school because of the the, the race demographic balances that the schools try to reach." They come back and every possible uh, obstruction is placed in their way. It's to say, I mean, they, uh, last year in December, they were told by, they, 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 for nine years, they had, they had refused to register a very prominent Swiss orthopedic surgeon, a surgeon who has uh, developed a procedure which carries his name and which is used all around the world. He wanted to immigrate to South Africa. Uh, he was willing to work for two years uh, free of charge at, I think, the Red Cross Hospital in Cape Town. He moved his family here, and his registration to this day hasn't been completed. They were told they had to uh, reach a decision within, within 30 days, and as far as I know, that would have been by the end of January. They have simply ignored the courts on that. They haven't reached a decision. And, and how powerful are they, the HPCSA? How powerful? They're very powerful. They're a statutory body. So they, uh, in order to take them to court, you have to disprove, or you have to prove that they have failed in their statutory duties. So the burden, the onus of, uh, is always on, uh, and the expense is always with the person who's suffering from, from their maladministration. There was a task team, a ministerial task team that was appointed, I think, during uh, Mozzoletti's period as health minister, which came to the conclusion that it was that the, that the that the top executive was corrupt, it was incompetent, uh, it was uh, the, the, a new broom was brought in, it was supposed to be cleared up, but in fact nothing has changed. They, these are largely political appointees, ANC political appointees, and they, they have the, not only the privilege of, of, of ANC patriots, but the protection that that affords them. To, to defy the courts, as they have with the Swiss surgeon, is outrageous. Um, but, you know, when individuals face a huge organization like that, they're in quite an invidious position. All they want is their problem to go away. They don't want to spend millions fighting a powerful and uh, organization which doesn't hesitate to contest these actions. So that is an interesting development. For the first time that I've seen in the past two years, the council has not contested the application against it. I think what might have changed that and brought that change about is that about a year ago, they lost an application and the court was so outraged by their behavior that it had awarded punitive costs against them and it ordered costs against the executive and the official that was involved. Now, at the end of the day, the, uh, the, the head of the council, nor the officially involved, will actually pay that money, I and mean, the council will probably pay it. But when money starts being involved, it potentially comes out of the pockets of the public servants, that starts bringing a change. And courts are moving in that direction, which is a really welcome way of keeping these thugs, these bureaucratic thugs under control. This thought leadership feature was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Lissetim Folo is with Easy Equities and it's the end of the quarter, Lissetim. In fact, well, first day of the new quarter. So what's top of the pops for the second three months of the year? Uh, we've seen a 
huge, 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 huge shift in the top five. Um, but one remains is Cecil, a firm favorite with its volatility, its experience in the early year uh, of last year. So Cecil dropping to, I think it was 21 Rand and started the year strong with 130 Rand and then doubled in April. So not a surprise to see it um, jumping up there and being number one. And then second, we have a firm favorite of mine, a company that owns the Easy Equities, the Purple Group, which has had ah. a spectacular six months. If I Lucetti, sorry, you, uh, we also have you in our portfolio, in the Biz News portfolio. You and finally added us in your portfolio. Yeah, but what a, what a dumb <laughs> thing. I bought it in the portfolio over three months. Instead of buying it all at 120 cents when it was there, uh, so we bought our last lot now at 151. Um, I mean, you must have bought your into your own company, I guess, a lot lower than that. It's it's really been a spectacular performance. Yeah, I mean, the goodwill is crazy now. I mean, so Easy Equities has hit a million registrations on its platform. And it's, you know, I mean, a lot of um, factors came into play. There's COVID-19, the partnerships with Capitech. But, I mean, it's all happening at, at Purple Group. And, I'm, I mean, we saw our biggest month of investors this month. So there's been over 18,000 investors that have invested into Purple Group via Easy Equities this month. So who's number three? Number three, we've got, obviously, the blue chip company, Naspers. And, I mean, when you hear Naspers, all you can think about is share swap. That's all you can think about. That's all I see. And, you know, as um, a holder in both um, Naspers and uh, process. It's it will be awfully nice to see these uh, these stocks finally live up to its fair value, and I think most of the easy equities investors would like to see the same thing happen. And if it doesn't happen, it would be a huge disappointment to all of all of the investors in Naspers. So I'm hoping for the best there. And uh, then that one's trading at around uh, I think 55 percent discount to its 10 cent shareholding at last call. But you're right; it's all to do with the share swap. And then um, fourth, we have uh, Sabanya, which is which is really not a shock. Uh, we, I mean, uh, the topic of mergers have, has featured with this company, Sabanya. When people are looking at Sabanya, they see it as trading at a discount co- compared to its fellow counterparts like Anglo and Goldfield, you know. So I think it's an interesting time for gold as well. So I kind of think that people are seeing Sabanya as a great value stock at this point in time. And I guess only time will tell. And then last but not least, we've actually got uh, Angler Gold Ashanti. And in my books, Angler has had one hell of a year. I mean, it's lack of a permanent CEO. It's suspension of its gold mine operations weighing on its stock. It's it's a tricky one, but I see I think that people are seeing it as a, a good time to get into Anglo because it's kind of trading at a discount right now, if you could call it that. But we'll see what the future has installed for Anglo Gold. Yeah, it's been the worst performer by some distance of the gold mine. So I guess value investors are saying, hang on, it's gonna catch up at some point in time. What have your guys been selling? Yeah, so it's it's not really different. I mean um, it, if we're looking at the top five again in terms of sellers on easy equities, number one would be Cecil, number two would be Purple Group, number three would be MTN Group, uh, number four, Sabanya Stillwater, and then lastly would be PPC. Okay, so PPC and MTN are the two different ones there. Yes. So net inflows, net outflows. Interesting that I guess PPC would be profit taking, maybe MTN as well profit taking. Both of those have done very well in the past three months. Yeah, especially PPC, you know. I've, I'm, uh, I really enjoyed seeing the PPC stock grow in my Easy Equities account and it was an interesting one for me to see it on the south side in the top five uh, because I'm still a holder of uh, PPC. What got you into the share? I'm interested because we've only kind of tumbled onto it recently. I had a fantastic interview with Roland von Veynen, the CEO, who's a, is a sensible guy. You can see he's got his head screwed on straight. He knows exactly what he's doing with the business. And it looks to me like, uh, sure, it's gone up a lot, but it's only just beginning its run. Exactly. It's it's on its rally. It's rallying up. And it's to that point that you mentioned, Alec, uh, is the reason why I actually invested in PPC. Um, I mean, last year it was a, f- a difficult time. But then this year and towards the end of last year, we saw I literally 
did a bit of research into it and I saw this is a stock that I could hold for about four to five years. And I believe in the CEO. That's it. Well, doing the research actually is what counts. It's, uh, it makes the difference, doesn't it, with, between investing and punting? Yeah, that's true. And I think your guys generally hold on to the shares for, you know, if you've got a million people now who are trading uh, or buying equities through easy equities, we know that you can buy in chunks of a hundred rand. So that makes it incredibly accessible, the the fractional investing. But generally speaking, are, are you finding that your clients are becoming investors? In other words, buying and holding, or are they in there for a bit of a dabble? You know, I work closely with the data and what I've seen with the data is that people are actually coming to easy equities for that sense of ownership to own something. And with ownership comes time and people are realizing that I'm going to own the share or a fraction of the share and I'm going to hold it for a specific amount of time. I'm going to hold it for longer than a period of two years or three years. And I think people are slowly starting to understand that aspect of not just time in the market, but time in the market. So I think they, they starting to understand that it's, it's all about the time. It's not about the timing. You've done a great job then on educating uh, the public on that one. Have you had, uh, have you got any data for us on the international action? Yes. And you know, that's, it's, it's been a bloodbath there uh, for the most of the U.S. spring. Um, but I definitely do. And obviously, number one, nothing has changed. Is Number one is Tesla, the most talked about share out there. I mean, people love Elon Musk. And it it's always, is always there on the easy equities top five. And then followed closely by it is Neo, which is number two on the easy equities most bought list. And the Shanghai car maker company is definitely playing in the same space as Tesla. And you can see people have a, a lot of appetite for this, this sector that we find Tesla and, and Neo playing in. Um, so, and Neo had a, a good set of results. I, I think it was in, in May where they reported over 7,000 vehicles were delivered, uh, which was a 125 increase from um, the same period last year. Okay, and the rest of the, the the rest of the top five of the international purchases by Easy Clients. And uh, number three, we've got Apple, and then fourth, we have the cannabis stock. Um, Alec, would you have? Do you have a guess what that stock Not is? Not a clue. Not a clue. I just know Labat in South Africa, but uh, of course, it's an. Starts with a T, Alec. Not a chance. I, I don't know the cannabis shares <laughs> outside my circle of competence. Um, we've got uh, um, Tilray, which is really doing the rounds in the investor community. I mean, the Easy Equities investors are high on the stock, but not as high as the Reddit um, users. And I mean, everyone is enthusiastic about what's happening with cannabis. And it's, it's no surprise to see the stock there. I mean, the shares um, have went up year to date close to 160, but over the past three months has gone down by 10%. And I don't think it's the end of the cannabis boom. I think it's really just starting. But ending off the top five of the US companies on that were bought on Easy Equities is um, Amazon, which is really one big, big, big company that people love. And people believe that Amazon is well on its way of being a dominant player on everything it touches. Well, it's Thursday night, and that means time for Pit Fulun to uh, shake us up again. Cheapest Pit, that story you wrote for Biz News on, oh, sorry, not the story, but the, the interview you had on not buying a house. <laughs> Why buying a house in South Africa is a bad idea. I, I think the estate agents must absolutely hate you, but certainly our community loves you. There are tens of thousands of people who've been downloading and reading that story. Yeah, look, I mean, I've, I've worked it out on spreadsheets uh, as as. Being a financial analyst, that's what I do. And it just doesn't make sense. It, it it can make sense for two reasons. One is emotional security. One understands that you want that some people find value in owning a home and the security it offers you. And that's an intangible value, which you can't quantify. And some people have that. So there's that. The other thing is that you can leverage. You can. Uh, it's one of the assets. One of the very few assets banks are willing to lend you money against. Uh, however, that 
only works if the value of the asset goes up over time. Um, and that's not always the case, especially in South Africa with a lot of our municipalities going backwards, uh, pulling down property prices with them. That could, that could be a problem. So leverage is the big thing. In other words, if you're going to gear up for something, you're going to accelerate the upside or downside. Or downside. In this case, yes. in this case exactly. the leverage is not a good thing. Exactly. So are you, are you telling me that the house that I bought when I came back to South Africa <laughs> after three years in the UK, the money would have been better spent left in the bank? Well, no, I don't think it's, it's better spent left in the bank. I think one needs to own assets – I, I just think there are better assets to own than homes or houses or property. I think there are many, many companies listed on the JSC and internationally that that grow despite the economic environment in South Africa and because of the economic environment offshore, uh, pay dividends. Uh, it's not like you have to phone your tenant and say you're three days late with a rent, please pay me. You get your dividend check every six months or three months, as the case may be in the U.S., uh, and it just pops into your bank account, uh, and it's clean and easy and simple. Yes, sometimes companies skip dividends because they go through a tough time, but that's just like losing a tenant in a house and he moves out and it takes you a year to replace the tenant. It's the same sort of thing. Um, so I, I actually think equity is a much better asset class to own over the long term than property. It's just uh, for building wealth. But for you personally, you don't own your own home then? I don't. No, I rent. And how, aren't you scared that the guy who owns it is going to come to you at some point in time and say, move on? Well, when the lease comes to an end, um, yes, they have the option to do to do that. Uh, but I have signed a long-term lease. So at least we know we're there for five years. Um, and, uh, you know, you never know what happens towards the end of the lease. Maybe we want to downscale, upscale, rescale. You know, it gives you lots of flexibility. Uh, maybe we want to move to a different neighborhood. Uh, you know, maybe we want to move to a different city. So it, it, it ha- gives you lots of flexibility as well. I, I, I take it you're not coming up to live in Johannesburg just yet. No, not, not quite yet, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, someone who lives in Johannesburg who's done very well, and you, one of his fans, is Christopher Seabrook with Sabvest. Uh, financial results out today, very good. Yeah. You told us at the Biz News Investment Conference, sure, it feels like a lifetime ago, yes. but it was in March yeah. this year, that uh, you, you tipped that share or recommended that it goes into one of those bundles. Yeah. Uh, those yeah. who purchased it will be very happy with you. Uh, were you. Are you comfortable with the progress at, at the company? Very much so. I mean, if you look at the track record of Savest and, and specifically Christopher Seabrook's track record in managing the assets of, of Savest, he has by far outperformed the Orsha Index in terms of the returns he's been generated uh, in terms of the growth in NAV per share. Uh, by far outperformed the Orsha Index. And you are able to still purchase this at a roughly a 35% discount in AV. So, you know, the assets are being discounted and these are good assets that have shown the ability to grow at high rates over time. So I think it's a win-win uh, and, and remains so, even though the share price is up by, I don't know, probably 20, 25% since we spoke six months ago. But um, I think there's a lot more to come over the next five to 10 years from, from Chris and, 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 and Sabvest. What else has caught your eye lately? Well, you know, another one of the stocks that, that I spoke about, you know, those twigs, you know, when I, when I put the portfolio together, I think I've spoken of, you know, each individual um, stock is a twig, uh, quite a brittle, easy to break twig. But if you bundle them together and tie them together, it creates quite a strong element. Uh, and that's how I look at a portfolio. So, you know, we can talk about specific stocks, but I might be wrong or right on any specific one. But altogether, they make a strong portfolio. Another one we did speak about, which was Caxton, um, uh, which was trading at below net current asset value uh, six months ago. In other words, you could liquidate the whole business, pay off all the liabilities just using their current assets ignoring their long-term assets and still have money left over. Uh, it was, you know, it was ridiculously cheap. Uh, since the share price has gone up and it looks like they are making a play for impact, the, the packaging recycler here in South Africa. Is it a good business, impact? I think so. Um, one that can turn around? I, I think it's a good business. I, I think it is a packaging, a, a large line of business, packaging recycling. And I think there's, 
no, recycling is the way to go. Um, so, and if you, if you walk into Willie's or ShopRite um, these days, you know, you buy anything there, it's packaged to the hilt. Uh, there's lots of packaging happening there. So there's lots of recycling to happen as well. So, yeah, I, I think it's a good business. Um, and it's um, and it could have growth prospects. So, yeah. Caxton is, of course, Terry Moorman's company. Yes. He's been around the block a yes. long, long time. Yeah. He knows what he's doing. He wouldn't be making a, a takeover offer uh, if he didn't know exactly what the assets were that he was acquiring yeah. and that they were at a very good price. So which of the two would you be going along with? Presumably Caxton as the acquisition. Yeah, so so Caxton is still trading at, at quite a low valuation relative to the asset value of the business. Uh, and if the acquisition is successful and uh, and turns out the way um, Terry, who's a good businessman, thinks it will, then I think you'll make money on, on at the Caxton level. Talking about another company that's uh, that's trading below its asset value, or presumably, uh, is Tongart. Mm. Uh, it's had a Good run in the last couple of days, gone from seven rand seventy. In fact, nice. when we did our uh, business webinar, it's in our portfolio, but yeah. we bought it at yeah, yeah. ten rand, uh, and it's gone from seven rand seventy to nearly ten, back to nearly ten rand again. Is is there something going on there that that we're all missing, or is it just a oh, reassessment? I, I think it's a reassessment. I, I think a lot of these businesses, like Tongart, that got into trouble, um, their share prices have. Went to very low levels, extremely low levels, uh, where there was antagonism, where there was hate, where there was dislike, distrust, all those things baked into the share price. And then, you know, as they start recovering, as they get uh, management in who starts right sizing things, who starts uh, getting the train back on the tracks, uh, the share price starts uh, acknowledging those efforts of management uh, and starts. Uh, possibly starts uh, accruing or, or, or according more value to the assets that are on the books already. So that's a process that's happened for, with many companies like Tongart. Uh, as you know, South Africa has had quite a few scandals over the past few years. Scandals always tend to come out in tough times, and we've been going through tough economic times in the past three, four years. So we've had quite a few scandals. Uh, and uh, many of those shares have rebounded quite sharply from their low levels. Tongard is one of them. So uh, there's probably a lot of stuff going on there that we don't know. A lot of restructuring happening, a lot of repositioning happening, a lot of refinancing happening. Um, but when the results come out shortly, then we'll know a lot more. And I think they have postponed the release of the results, uh, you know, uh, possibly to do with uh, – most likely to do with IFRS and, and adjustments. Uh, but you know, I wouldn't worry too much about that. And Pete, just to close off with, we're now back in a heavy lockdown um, mm. due to the third wave of COVID-19. That hasn't been good news for many industries that have been holding on almost by the yes. by the, the, skin the, of the teeth. The, yeah. the fingertips. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, skin of the teeth. Yeah. Uh, are there any companies that we now need to be really worried about that they just can't get through this last little bit i, I hear uh, the stories about sun international perhaps looking for an for more yet more money from yeah. its shareholders and ex, as an example so I, I do think if you went into this with a lot of debt if you didn't use the last six to nine months to get your financial house in order and you went into this with a lot of debt it could tip you over it's quite possible I wouldn't want to speculate on Sun International whether that will happen to them or not. I know they have quite a heavy debt load. Uh, but the other thing one has to say is that these businesses like Sun International, like Soho, like City Lodge, they've always, always also learned how to manage their businesses with a much lower cost base and uh, in line with government regulations and maintain the business. Uh, so, so they've learned from the previous lockdowns. This lockdown hopefully is only two weeks. I, I think most businesses should be able to see through it. It's tough. It, it pushes out what you wanted to do by another two weeks or a month or you know, however long it takes. Uh, it's hard. Uh, but I think most businesses will have learned from previous lockdowns and are facing this one with a bit more, bit more confidence. But what about smaller businesses like mm. restaurants yes. uh, who now – have no more patrons and not because yeah. they're not allowed to bring patrons in. I guess they can still do takeaways. We're going to talk to Grace Harding in just a moment yeah. uh, from the coalface. But uh, 
that must be a, a really tough place to be. And, and are there illicit companies that, that yeah. would be exposed? Super tough. Um, I, I think there are very few listed companies that we would expose. The listed companies are more the, you know, Spur would be an obvious example, but Spur does a lot of takeaway as well. So, you know, they'll, they'll be able to, and they're financially strong, they'll be able to see through the two-week period. Famous brand has most, mostly takeaways, uh, which won't really be that affected by this. Um, and so they will be able to see it through. Um, so I, I think they're okay. It's the mom-and-pop sh- shops that are the main problem. It's not really in the list environment. It's, it's the neighborhood shop, the mom and pop shop, uh, that enterprise that has uh, two or three people working there. Um, those are the ones that um, I feel very sorry for and that, that are really facing some tough times. Grace Harding. Sure. I've been thinking about you a bit, Grace, because Ocean Basket is – is of course your passion, but uh, you're also involved in the organization that tries to look after restaurant owners and uh, people who work at restaurants. And this latest lockdown, uh, given the difficulties that we've seen in the past year, uh, maybe a year and a half now, uh, are there people who were hanging on by the, uh, the, the, the skin of their teeth and now giving up? I think a lot are going to give up. I, I had a chat to a few independent restaurateurs a few minutes ago, and the level of uh, almost depression is absolutely hectic because it's tough enough owning a restaurant with all the other difficulties like crime and people snatching cell phones and you know all sorts of other nonsense. So I think it's really hectic uh, at the moment. And as we've been saying for a long time, it impacts such a huge value chain and our crew because there is no tours. I remember early days learning about economics, hearing about this thing called opportunity cost, and they always used to use a barber. They said, well, a barber could earn much more money working for someone else, but they like to work for themselves to be a barber. Is it similar in the restaurant business where people, because the hours seem long, the energy you have to put into seems a long time. And now with uh, the lockdowns that we've seen over the past year, uh, it's it's got to have made the economic proposition so much uh, less attractive. Over the years, I would say over the last sort of 12, 13 years, uh, the return on investment on a restaurant has definitely reduced. And it is still an industry that attracts the crazy ones, the chefs, the entrepreneurs, the mad ones. And it's still an industry that's relevant. People are not going to stop wanting to be together. I read some McKinsey International research a while ago, and they asked people, when you're allowed out, what are the things you're going to want to do? And number two on the list was go to a restaurant. That was number two. Number one was go visit my friends and family. So. The, the restaurant model and business is relevant. It's much tougher to run. You're, you're absolutely correct. The challenges are, are huge and people, yeah, they're completely exhausted and there's still people opening. I mean, one restaurant will close and within days you will see another one open. So I think we also suckers for punishment, but the independents, they really have a tough time. Uh, I mean, franchisees, although they are Semi-entrepreneurs, they have the support of a franchisor. That's our job, to keep them safe. We fight for them. We go to the banks for them. We solve problems for them. These guys who are alone, it's damn tough. And they're still opening restaurants. Are are, are these people who've got too much money or don't understand what's happening around them or just hope, faith? It's a passion. The ballerina who's got broken toes, she still wants to fix them and get back onto her points. Uh, I think it's a combination of things. I think the guys opening the independence, it's not about the money. Um, it's about the love and the passion and the dream. I mean, and they, some of them are doing amazing stuff. They really are. They're into sustainability and they grow their own veg. I think the people who go into franchising, sometimes it's uh, investment of a dad for a son or a relative and some guys are business guys and some own 50 60 restaurants so it's a very differentiated industry and it's full of crazy people who are not in a good space so grace we've got two weeks 
the president mm. tells us of this very tough lockdown. Mm. If the third wave ameliorates and if uh, we get some relief there, is that going to be enough to get the industry back rolling again? Look, when we got going again after the the knock in December, the restaurants definitely started to breathe. Did they get to fantastic numbers? No, because the consumer is still afraid and lots of people have been retrenched. So, you know, we're getting knocked from every angle. There's, there's no way that we can turn without getting a slap. And, of course, if it opens up, we will start to breathe, even if they allow us to open without liquor for a while. But to just lump us with a generic term of restaurant and shut us down, it's not only the impact of today, it's the long-term impacts, deeper in debt, with a landlord, with a bank, staff who are you know, now going to be more demoralized. So will we come back? I think if we don't have another lockdown, it'll take probably around two years. In your business or throughout? I think throughout, you know, I mean, definitely in our business. I mean, you know, you're talking about profits that are like nothing last year. This year will be nothing. If we get back on our feet and people are vaccinated and a few retrenched people find jobs, maybe in 2022, we may get to the 2019 numbers, perhaps. And then 2023, we may start to grow. But um who knows? It's definitely at least two years. Uh, and it is just a, a guess. It's not, you know, sort of educated. So if you own a restaurant, I've got a good friend who made an investment, sadly, just before COVID. And he's been hanging in there and his staff are just the most amazing people. Mm. But it's impossible if you, you can't have patrons in your in your restaurant. Absolutely. How long do you hold on for? How how many times do you go back to the bank manager for an additional loan? But that's why this is really, really so close to the end because the, you know, people just started paying back the loans they got. And the landlords, some of them have been really great, but they've also got loans. So, you know, I want you to give me a break, but you're not getting a break from your bank and the bank's not getting a break. So if the lockdown continues past uh, whatever the 9th, 10th of July. I don't know what's going to happen because it's, it's about cash flow and you own one restaurant. You're not saving hundreds and hundreds of thousands every month. There's just no way. So what's your message to Cyril Ramaphosa? <sighs> to Cyril? Oh, do I wish I had his WhatsApp? The message is twofold. Number one, we can't imagine how you feel. And it must be terrifying to see the deaths and the illnesses <clears throat> and the lack of oxygen supply and all of that. And you are caught between a rock and a hard place because some horrible people took all our money away. So I, I'd like to acknowledge that. The second thing is to say, please don't lump us all together. A restaurant, a coffee shop, a mug and bean, a tashes, you know, a spur, ocean basket, People walk in, they know each other, they sit together, they eat and they go. They're not roaming around, they're not falling about, they're not slurring on each other. And what COVID has taught us is the work that needs to be done to start to show that a sit-down restaurant is different, it has different needs and it has different challenges. The costing model is so much greater, the rent, everything. So perhaps a takeaway could bounce back a little easier. But a sit-down restaurant, it's really difficult. And uh, please, you can't shut us down. It's, it's not going to work. And we understand what you're doing. How many have you lost? How many restaurants have you lost? Industry-wide, we don't know. So one of the reasons that we want to get the Restaurant Collective going is it's such a fragmented industry. There are no numbers, Alec, in this country that show how many restaurants, how many staff. There's nothing really scientific. But I, from an ocean basket perspective, last year we lost not many, about five or six, and they were limping anyway. But what we're going to lose now, God forbid, that is directly related to COVID. And I think countrywide, there are thousands and thousands that have closed. This 
this lockdown, though, if it goes beyond two weeks, it will be a proper nail in the coffin. Because some of the guys who closed last year, they reopened, you know, in February, March of this year. And that's an expensive process. Absolutely. So they've got no more airlift. The tank is empty. And that was the Biz News Power Hour from our team here in Johannesburg. Until the next time, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.